Okay, guys, uh, we're going to go ahead and, and dive into God's word here. So uh, let's end those conversations. Yes, yes. Quiet it down, quiet it down. I got to be louder. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and, yeah, yeah, quiet it down. I'm going to have to pull up my teacher tricks here in a second. If you can hear me, clap once. Yes, okay. Thank you, the teacher. Yeah, we've got someone in the back. Uh, guys, I love... I do. I love the chatting every week because it is such a reminder that we are doing this together, that this really is a community of people who uh, loves each other and is coming to love each other more and more all the time. But seriously, it's time to get started if you don't want to be here all day. So, uh, okay, as you guys know, we are, uh, we've just started, we've just launched this sermon series in the book of Revelation. Ooh. Uh, and Revelation is a roller coaster. Right? It takes all kinds of incredible twists and turns. And for the people who would have received it, they would be kind of thinking the same way we are. They're going to be asking the question, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? That's, you kind of can't help but ask that question as you're flipping through this book. It has you kind of on the edge of your seat. And what, what, the, what the author of Revelation, what John is doing is, is through this kind of at sometimes very wacky imagery, is he's pulling back the curtain on our world and he's saying, let me show you what is actually happening behind the scenes. That he's keeping us just enough off balance that he can get around our defenses and get to our hearts. It's calling us to engage with reality in a new way with reality as it actually is on a deeper level than perhaps we do on a regular basis. And we talked about last week how after John has this vision of the ascended Jesus, how that Jesus comes to him and lays his hand on John's shoulder and he says, fear not. As we go through the journey of being in this book of Revelation, that the words that we've got to hear from Jesus as we start are the words, fear not. Because if you read this book, you get to the end and what you find is that you're more afraid of the future than you were when you started, it means that you're missing the point of the book. Fear not, Jesus says. And the book of Revelation not only exposes what is happening out in our world, but it also exposes us. It pulls back the curtain on what is going on inside of us. And that is a scary thing, isn't it? Like, have you ever had someone ask you, hey, can I share some feedback with you? Uh, does that mean maybe you're seeing something in me that I don't see in myself? It can be a scary thing. That's what's going to be happening for us over the course of this journey in Revelation is that God's pulling back the curtain. He's exposing things in our own hearts. But what you need to know before we do that, even this morning, is that your Jesus is with you and he's saying, do not fear. You've got nothing to be afraid of as I show you uh, the reality of the world and the reality of what is going on inside of you. You've got to know that even coming into our text this morning. Do not fear. Fear not. And if you remember, in our first week, we talked about how the book of Revelation, one of the one of kind of the safety bars we've installed on this roller coaster so we don't go flying off into some crazy theological ditch, right, is that the book of Revelation is a letter. And because it's a letter, it means it was written to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. And that the meaning that we find in that book has to be in some way organically related to what it meant to the people who got it in the first place. And we talked about how... Uh, there, there are seven churches. It was a letter written to seven different churches. And we're getting to the part of the book where we, where we get essentially the introduction uh, to the book of Revelation that was written to each of those seven churches. 
So each of those seven churches got a specific introduction to their church. And John, being the pastor that he is, says, I know what's going on kind of in your community. And this message of the book of Revelation speaks exactly to where your community is. And so he talks to them about what's going on in their community. And then this community, when they've received the book of Revelation, right, they're going to hear themselves like read out loud in this letter. And they're going to hear John putting his finger on what is going on in their midst right then, which would be a, an incredible experience. Kind of a scary experience, right? And then that introduction frames the rest of the way that they take in the letter. So for these next two weeks, what we've chosen to do is to take two of those introductions and spend some time in them for us as a congregation. And the first letter that we're in uh, is the letter to the church in Pergamum. So I'm going to invite Mary Bloom to come up. Mary is going to read for us that letter, that introduction to the letter that the church in Pergamum would have heard. But before we get there, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read for you the description of Jesus that we talked about last week. Because what we discussed is that we, we got this vision of the resurrected Christ, right, as he is in heaven amongst these seven golden lampstands. And the whole point of that picture is that Jesus is among us even now. And it was showing us the kind of Jesus who was among us even now, Jesus who is resurrected, Jesus who is strong, Jesus who has eyes that are like fire, that pierce through the veils that we create for ourselves, that see us as we are, that love us as we are, and that are there to change us. That's the Jesus that we encounter. And if you, uh, if you have a Bible that puts the words of Jesus in red, uh, the, wor the, the introductions to these seven churches are in red. Because the Jesus who is amongst the lampstands is speaking these words to the churches. And so I want to read you this description of Jesus so that you can have a sense of the Jesus who is among us speaking these words to us. Does that make sense? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this. To the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they may have... So they, they, that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
Thanks, Mary. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus, who uh, would come among us, uh, who is among us, and who we trust uh, desires to speak to us even now. Lord, would you uh, take these words that were written to a church 2,000 years ago, and would you uh, make them alive in our hearts this morning? And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Okay, so as we, as we work through this letter this morning, uh, we're going to see that Jesus, he pulls back the curtain on the compromise that we so easily fall into with our world. So he pulls back the curtain on our own compromise, and he calls us to a different kind of community. And then he gives us this charge in the letter to conquer. So those are our three C's. Did you catch them? Uh, compromise. <laughs> this is why you do the C's so they stick, right? Compromise, community, and conquer. Okay, compromise, community, and conquer. That's where we're going. And what you're going to see as a theme throughout the compromise, through the community, through the conquering, is that your Jesus, our Jesus, is desperately committed to your freedom. But in fact, he is far more committed to your freedom than you are. And that that is really good news for us. Okay, so let's start uh, by talking about this idea uh, of compromise. So uh, Romans, Romans 10, 9, uh, it says, wow, guys, I am really struggling this morning. Okay, I promise that we will find the flow. Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll, you will be saved. And I, I have read that before and thought, well, this sounds a little bit too easy, doesn't it? We would just say, Jesus is Lord, okay, believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, great, check, we're good. And for a long time, that's kind of how the church has like thought about it, especially in the last century, in the 20th century. It was like a name it and claim it situation. Hey, I prayed the prayer, I got my ticket, I'm good to go. And that is actually a really big misunderstanding of what it meant in this world to call Jesus Lord. Because to call Jesus Lord in John's world had massive implications for the Christians who received this letter. So we have this idea that life should be separated into a public and private spheres. And religion for us is something that is kind of relegated into the private sphere. So like, yes, you can believe whatever you want, you just keep that kind of in your house, and then you go out, and then we do the rest of our life in this public space that is kind of free of religious influence, which there are a lot of, we could talk more about that, whether or not that's actually how it works, but in our minds, that's kind of the way that it's set up, Right? That was not the way that they thought about it in the Greco-Roman world, in the context that, that John is writing into. That the economic life, the political life, the civic life of every city in the Roman Empire was all bound up in religion. It was all interconnected. That the worship of the gods, the various gods, was, was all incredibly connected to every aspect of daily life. And one of the gods that was worshipped in this, well, really across the Roman Empire, but especially in the church in Pergamum, uh, was the emperor. That Pergamum asked special permission to be the first city to raise a temple specifically to a deified emperor. To an emperor who had proclaimed himself God, who had proclaimed himself Lord. 
And at first, that was an honor that was reserved specifically for dead emperors. Guys, now we're getting into the history part, which, as you know, is my favorite, okay? So it was specifically reserved for emperors who had died, but, but became over time a title that even limp, living emperors were, felt themselves entitled to. So to be an active a, a, a citizen in good standing in the Roman Empire meant that you had to confess that Caesar, that that reigning emperor was Lord. And what happened under the reign of this emperor Domitian is that he said, hey, what we're going to do to make sure we're all on the same page about this is we're all going to line up. Okay. Great. So we're all going to take a little bit of incense and we're going to sprinkle it on this altar and just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to do. Just a little Caesar is Lord and you're good. Everyone's good. Because for most people in the Roman Empire and for most people in the empire, this was not a problem. Because they were happy to hold Caesar as Lord along with all of their other gods. There was no conflict for them in believing that Caesar was Lord and that they were all of these other gods who were Lord in some way also. But for a Christian to confess that Jesus is Lord was to say that Jesus is the only Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say there is no other person, no other God who is Lord but Jesus. And so what, what, they, what, what that meant for them is that they could not sprinkle the incense on the altar and call Caesar Lord in good conscience because Caesar was not Lord, Jesus was Lord. And that totally upended their lives. It's hard to describe all of the ways that that created barriers between them and, and the rest of the people that they had spent so much of their lives with. It totally upended everything for them. All of their economic, political, civil relationships, even relationships within their own families. That to call Jesus Lord meant to reject all of these other lords. So why would they do it? What would be worth uh, having to change your entire relationship to the world around you? I think we could talk about a lot of different reasons. I think one, one, of the, one of the core elements of this, the reason that people were able to redefine all of their relationships to the people around them was because what they were experiencing in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ was freedom. That people who were becoming Christians then are, were like in some ways us. That they were, for example, really afraid of dying. They wondered, what comes after this? Does anything come after this? And if I'm going to have to stand before God or the gods one day, what am I going to be held to account for? Is there any security for me in that? And the gospel said, yes. We talked about that last week, that there is, there is hope for you on the other side of the grave. There is hope for you when you stand before God and are judged. There's hope for you, and that hope is Jesus. Oh, there was so much freedom for them in that. And calling Jesus Lord, it also brought them all kinds of freedom as it related to, to, to being connected to all of these other gods. Think about what it would have been like to live in a city full of temples to various gods. This was true in Pergamum, right? You had a temple to Zeus up on the hill. You've got a temple to the, to the snake god a Askepla. I don't even know how to say the name, okay? But it's is a God who uh, was the God of healing, a God known as Savior. And people would go into this God's temple at night, and the hope was that if one of the holy snakes that was kept in this temple slithered over you, that you might be healed. 
not to mention the, the, the emperor worship that was happening in, these, in the city, all of these gods that were being worshipped. And you had to constantly live with the weight of, I have got to keep these gods happy. Because the gods, the, the Greek gods, the gods that they believed in were not like the god that we believed in. Because the stories that are, that you, that if you remember like back to middle school, probably didn't learn them in middle school because they're, they're a little bit too graphic for middle schoolers. The stories of these gods are crazy. Gods who are forcibly having sex with, with humans and then whose wives are punishing those humans. Gods who are vengeful and blameful, who are coming against people who are mercurial and have to be kept, kind of whose favor has to be courted on a regular, ongoing basis. That is the world that these people lived in. And so they're constantly trying to figure out, what do I have to do to keep this God on my side? And what the gospel said is, no, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is far more powerful than any of those other gods. And there is nothing you have to do to keep Jesus pleased with you. In fact, he is pleased with you because of what he has done for you. Oh, the freedom of that. There's so much freedom for people in the gospel. And guys, this is, this is hard to believe because of the narrative that kind of exists in our world. But uh, one, of the, one of the ways that the gospel brought so much freedom to the people in this world uh, is the way that it talked about sexuality. That the Christian definition of sexuality brought so much freedom uh, into the world. Because the, the Christian vision of sexuality, uh, it conflicted not only with both the incredibly traditional and the incredible progressive views of sex that existed in the Roman Empire. Like a few decades before this letter was written, Caesar Augustus criminalized being a bachelor. He criminalized being infertile. So you could be, you could be charged under Roman law. You could have to pay these massive fines if you chose not to get married because of how central an institution marriage was to the functioning of this society. And what Christianity came and said is, you don't have to get married to be a full person. That you choosing to be single is a totally legitimate calling on your life. That you not having children is not a curse from God, but actually it, 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 it's okay. It's not punishable by a fine because you are more than your sexuality. And you are more than what you can obtain from marriage. That, that it, Christianity dignified uh, being single. That brought so much freedom to people. Widows flocked to the church because this was a place that they could be taken care of and not be pressured into marriages that were not good for them. They were finding freedom because of this Christian teaching. And, and we, and it was, there was so much more freedom even than that. That the Christian sexual ethic, that, that what the, church was teaching, because this is what Jesus taught, is that sex was reserved for a, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And that brought incredible freedom to the people that were a part of this empire. Because the way that, that sexuality operated in the Roman world is that if you had power, it meant that you had the power to do whatever you wanted to the people who, were, who had less power than you that you could exert your will over the people who had less power than you sexually, and no, as long as that person was not a Roman citizen, it didn't matter. No one even cared. No one even noticed. 
and the, the gospel came into that and said, that is not okay. That consent matters. The idea that consent matters, that is a uniquely Christian teaching, and it's incredibly important to us in our current world, as it should be. But what you got to know is that uh, that is a teaching that flows in a really unique way from Christianity. And it's, it's all over our discourse, as it should be. Often we just fail to cite our sources. That Christianity brought so much freedom and protection from people, for people, in the way that it described and limited sex. There's this Greek, uh, Greek philosopher, his name is Ovid. And the way he talked about desire, he said, we always want what we're not allowed. Prohibitions, trust me, only encourage bad behavior. And he came from kind of the more progressive uh, side of the Greco-Roman world. And what he was saying is all of those archaic teachings about, about sexuality and who should have sex with who, forget about it. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. It doesn't matter. And so you get temple prostitutes, right? You have all kinds of, of uh, all kinds of stuff happening in this world uh, that continue to victimize all sorts of people. And the message of the gospel came in and said, no, no, you are not a slave to your desire. You, you can be free. That your sexuality, your expression of that sexuality, it doesn't define you. And your, your want for something doesn't define you. You have freedom there. You have the freedom to choose something different. The gospel was an incredibly freeing message. So people were drawn to it. And in this letter... John acknowledges, Jesus acknowledges uh, that calling him Lord, it had consequences with the way people were living, that, that this freedom that they were brought in the gospel, it, it had implications for their relationships with the rest of society. That's what John is talking about when he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He's encouraging them. He's telling them, you were willing in the midst, in the face of immense persecution to hold fast to the idea that I am your Lord. Even when one of your friends, even when one of the people from your community was killed because of that. He's encouraging them. You, you are being faithful, yes. And then he says, yeah, I have this against you. And then he goes into some, some comparisons with this Old Testament story about Balaam and Balak. You can read it in Numbers, uh, starting in chapter 23, if you're interested in that. We're not going to dive into all of that this morning. But the, wh where it kind of meets their day-to-day -day life is he says uh, that there are people eating food sacrificed to idols and pra practicing sexual immorality. And Jesus says, because that's happening in your midst, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight against those people who are practicing those things. I'm like, whoa, Jesus, that seems very intense, okay? The food to idols, the sexual immorality, isn't that all very old-fashioned? I thought that nobody cared about those things anymore. 
No, but, but what you've got to understand is that to, to eat food that was sacrificed to idols, to practice sexual immorality, was for these people returning back to the slavery that they had been liberated from. They were trading in their freedom. What was happening with this food sacrificed to idols is essentially there were very powerful trade unions. You can think of it as like a union, a trade guild. And it was closed shop, right? To, to work in a specific trade, you had to be a part of the guild. So you would say to your spouse, hey, honey, I'm going to go to the guild meeting. We're going to like, you know, worship Zeus, have a meal, celebrate Zeus, and then we'll like talk about guild business. And as Christians, you're like, well, I can't go and worship Zeus as a part of my guild because he's not Lord. It was causing all of this, all of this tension. And there were, there were Christians who were willing to say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal, right? Like Jesus doesn't really care about that. It's just food. And they would cover it up kind of in theological clothes. And it was the same. But, but what people were doing is when they would go to those guilds and they would worship Zeus and they would eat the food that was sacrificed to him, they were going back and putting themselves under the lordship of another master. They were trading in the freedom that they had found in Christ. They were saying, God, you were not good enough to provide what my family needs, so I'm going to have to go out and get it myself and appease these other gods while also calling you Lord. Right? It's the same thing with the sexual immorality that we're talking about here, that, that Jesus is saying, I know I've set you free from that, but even though they've been set free, they keep going back to it. They're acting like they're enslaved, even though that they're not. And Jesus cares about his people so much that he's willing to say, I, I, lo I love you so much, I'm willing to come against you and fight for you, and fighting for you may at times feel like I'm fighting with you because of how much I love you and how much I want you to enjoy the freedom I've purchased for you. Have you guys ever experienced that? Jesus fighting for you and it feels like he's fighting against you? that you're working so hard, that we've worked so hard to kind of blind ourselves to what we're doing that we know is outside of the bounds that Jesus would set for us, that it creates more pain in our lives. We go to this thing that used to bring us so much joy and pleasure, and we're like, why does this not feel as good as it used to? Jesus, yes, that's true. That's the, that's the pain that we feel when we're fighting against the lordship of Jesus that we've confessed, when we're fighting against the freedom that we have been called into. And Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to fight for your freedom even when you will not fight for it yourselves. It was true for the church in Pergamum, and it's true for us. In all of the places that we are tempted to compromise the freedom that we have been given in and through Christ, what you've got to know is that you have a Jesus who is passionate about your freedom. You have a Jesus who is passionate about your freedom. And he's actually called us into that, that fight for freedom uh, in each other's lives. That's what we talk about when we're talking about community. That Jesus cares so much about your freedom that he has actually placed people in your life, people who are in this room, who he has called to fight for your freedom with you and for you and sometimes against you, or it may feel like against you. And it comes out... Uh, in this passage, when he says, so also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolettos, that's down the street, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, right? He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you, to you, the church, and I will war against them. 
the specific people who are practicing this with the sword in my mouth. What he's acknowledging, what he's, what he's highlighting for the church is that there is a sense in which they have set down the obligation that God has put on them to love the people around them, that they have said, it is not worth it to us to fight for your freedom with you, and so we're going to actually make Jesus come and do it himself. So the call there to this church is together, he's saying, together would you all repent for the ways that you have compromised with each other, the ways that you have made friends with each other's compromises, and would you, would you be willing to love each other enough to call each other into freedom? And that is how, that's how the Bible defines community. And guys, uh, are you interested in that kind of community? Yes and no, Right? Yes and no. If you're, if you're alert and awake to what I'm saying, the answer should be yes and no. Like if people here want to sign up and bring me a meal train when we have a baby, that's great. I love that kind of community. My kids are sick, and we, well, not when my kids are sick. If we're sick, we need help. Would you please take our kids? You guys have seen this sometimes. I had someone do this for me uh, when we were over at Memorial Lutheran. They found out my wife was sick. I was obviously not in a good place. They're like, hey, do you want us to watch your kid for the afternoon? I'm like, Yes, please, right? I'm all in for that kind of community that's willing to offer help when it's needed. But as soon as you want to get up in my business about my wife, well, let's talk about how you came at me, though, right? We have this sense of hyper-individualism in our world. You talk about communal uh, to or collective to individual cultures, you know, and there you can kind of put every culture somewhere along uh, that spectrum. The, the culture that we have here in the United States is as far over in the individualized culture as you can possibly get in the history of the world. And, and that's not an exaggeration. That we worship this idea of us being totally independent people. If you remember back, I don't know when this was. This was, I guess, 2008 maybe uh, in, the, in the Obama-Romney election that one of the things that Barack Obama said during the debate was, you didn't build that. And they were talking about taxes and stuff and businesses, and he said, you didn't build that. Essentially, you didn't build it all by yourself. People were very upset about that. He was like, well, let's just acknowledge that, like, people paid for the roads that got the goods to, like, where they needed to go, right? Like, you have employees who helped build the thing. Now, of course, as a business owner, there are ways that you contributed to that, but, but what it highlighted is this hyper-individualism in us as Americans. No, I built this. I did it. And what the gospel does is it calls us out of, uh, I mean, out of the, the, the slavery that that is to believe that I alone have the power to determine my life. And it calls us into a different way of living, into a gospel way of living, a way of living that requires us to be in community, to say that we actually have been created to need each other. And part of what we're called to as a community is to pushing into the places of compromise that have snuck up in each other's lives. Now, and here's where all the yeah buts come in, right? Are you, any of you thinking, yeah, but, at this point in the sermon? Is anyone? Okay, I just want you to know, you can yeah but this part of the sermon to death. I certainly have done it, which has made it very hard to prepare this, this element of what we're talking about. Because everything I think about, I think of all the ways it can go wrong. And it can, and it has. And that's really hard. And has caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. Yes. And Jesus is calling us to learn how to practice that together as a community. I'm going to give you three more C's about what that looks like. A lot of alliteration today, okay? The first is that we would practice curiosity with each other. That we would be curious about what is happening in each other's lives. 
that we would be curious enough to, to know each other. And that we would actually allow others to be curious about us. Like, I love to be the person who sits across from you and asks you questions. But then when someone says, well, how are you? I'm like, oh, well, let me talk about something else. You know what I'm talking about? That we would be a community that would practice curiosity in getting to know each other so that we can love each other well. That we would also be a, a community that, that exhibits great courage in the way that we love each other. Because as we are curious about each other, there are going to be things that come up. And you think, man, we got to talk about this hard thing that it seems like everybody is avoiding. And you guys know, if you've ever had a hard conversation with a friend, you know the, the, the courage that it takes to enter that conversation. And you know, as someone who's been on the receiving end of those conversations, how much courage it takes to let someone tell you the things that you see in your life that are blind spots to you. Woof, that is hard, isn't it? That takes courage to set down our defenses and to hear what our friends have to say. And in the place of practicing that courage, it honestly, it, it invites us to step deeper into curiosity. Say, like, hey, can you tell me more about what's going on inside of you while we're having this conversation? Hey, am I seeing this right? Or to say as we're receiving the feedback, hey, is there anything else that you see that I'm missing? That we would be a, a community that practices curiosity and courage with each other even when it costs because you know if you've ever had one of these conversations where you're thinking, man, I really got to talk to my friend about this hard thing, the amount of worry and prayer that goes into it before the conversation even happens, you pay a high cost to get even to the point where you would have a hard conversation, don't you? Yeah. Would we love each other enough to pay that cost? And when there's someone who comes to you with something that is so hard, to sit and listen to them say something that then you're going to have to sift through, how much of that is true, how much of it may not be true, man, there is a cost that you pay when you let someone else share that kind of stuff with you. That's real. Would you be willing to pay that cost? Proverbs tells us that wounds from a friend can be trusted which means there will be times in relationships where we hurt each other and, it's, and it's, there's sin there and that we've got to repent of it. And that there will be times where we hurt each other as people who love each other and that, that will be a necessary part of us loving each other. There's a cost associated with that. And that's the kind of community God has called us to be together that would fight for each other's freedom. And in fighting for each other's freedom, we are called to conquer. That's ultimately what Jesus holds out for us. He says the desire that he has for us is as, we, as he fights for our freedom, as we fight for each other's freedom, is that we would overcome, that we would conquer. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. But Jesus is saying, in this world that is full of compromise, in this world where we are fighting to love each other, fighting uh, to pursue each other's freedom in the gospel, that it is possible that we would experience victory in that. Is that good news? Yes. So let's just talk for a minute about how the book of Revelation teaches us to approach this idea of conquering. And one of the big clues happens in verse 16, therefore repent. So I just want to give you this visual picture. Okay, so if sin is over here, right? This is sin over here. When I sin, I'm like, I am walking towards sin. To repent is to stop, 
and to turn around and to walk the other way. Okay, this is repentance. Now, we like to do this in a lot of, we like to try a lot of variations on repentance that aren't actually repentance. Like sometimes we like to say, yeah, I'm gonna, okay, now I'm just gonna start walking away from it. Now, I really love it. I wish I could do it, but I'm gonna like try to not, then we kind of do this kind of dance. Does that, do any of you connect with that? Okay, we can treat that as repentance. Or we can do this. This is one of my favorites. Walking towards sin, oh, I gotta repent. Okay, great. And we just go like this. <laughs> right? This is what we say. We're like, hey, I, don't, don't worry, I'm being careful with the sin. Right? No, this is not repentance when you keep walking toward it. To repent is to turn around and to walk the other direction. Okay, but, but have any of you ever cheated on a test? Some of you, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, define cheat, right? Yeah, we've all been there. Like, even as an adult human, when I was in seminary, I took this test. Actually, Julie knows, because I was in Julie's office when it happened. She was proctoring my exam. And I thought that I was allowed to use notes on the test. But then I finished the test, and it very clearly said, you cannot use notes. Okay, you can imagine, immediate, if you know me, you know immediately I was in a doomsday spiral, right? Like, what the worst thing is going to happen, I'm going to, like, fail this class. I broke the honor code, so they're probably going to kick me out of seminary. And if I don't get to go to seminary, I can't have this job. But what's going to happen to my family? Pretty soon, we're, like, living on the street. Okay, and Julie's like, hey, that's probably not going to happen. Sounds like, though, you feel convicted that you should tell the truth. I'm like, oh, right, okay, no, good, that's good. We'll start there. But what if you knew... Before you confess the cheating, how Jesus was going to respond to you? Like, what if you knew what was going to happen af after? Would that change your willingness to admit that you cheated on a test? Okay, I guess I'm cutting to the to the to the payoff of the metaphor, right? If you knew how the person, if, if you knew how your professor was going to treat you afterwards, would you be more willing to share? Chances are probably yes. Okay, that's what's so important in repentance. Okay, so we're walking towards sin. We turn around. What do, you, what do we see here? Like, who are we walking toward? And how does that Jesus see us? Because that really matters for this entire conversation about compromise, about community, about what we're calling each other toward. And it comes out in Revelation 12, 11. It says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, the word of our testimony, that that is how we conquer. That how we conquer, how we overcome, how we experience victory in this world that is so full of compromise is by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Which means when you turn around and you look over here, what you are going to see in repentance is your, is the Jesus who gave himself for you. The Jesus who said, I love you so much that even knowing all the things that you would ever do that were wrong, even in that place, I died for you because of how much I love you. And when you turn away from the sin and you look in his eyes, that's what you're going to see is that love. He's saying, I paid for it. It's taken care of. So now when you turn away from the sin, oh, now we get to run to that Jesus. We don't got to walk with our heads down, you know, drag our feet. I'm so sorry, Jesus. No, you run to him because of what you see in his eyes that he loved you so much, he was willing to give his life for you. That's how we overcome because that is so much better, that is so much more free than all of the other lords that we are tempted to compromise with in our lives. That we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. You know what our stories are? Guys, we, we, when we share, when we do testimony time, do you ever do testimony time growing up in youth group? Now I'm going to get up and I'm going to share my testimony. And often what we talk about when we share our testimony is all of our like Christian victories. Here are all of my Christian trophies I will display for you, right? 
That's how we can kind of do it when we tell our Christian stories. Guys, that's not our story. Our stories are all of the ways that we have messed up and Jesus has met us in our repentance and been gracious and giving to us, which means that when we come to each other to have hard conversations, whether we are the person who is coming or the person who is receiving the coming, that what we know is true is that both of us are people who desperately have needed Jesus to die for us. Oh, it humbles us that we're coming both as needy people who are desperate for the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross a humble place, a loving place that we're saying to each other, remember what Jesus' eyes look like when we turn back to him? Turn back to him with me. Let's do it. That's how we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the, the word of our testimony that we can say to each other, remember that time that you messed up and it was really bad and Jesus met you there? That is such good news. And the invitation is that that would even be the way that we share our stories with each other that we would be willing to talk about, not hide in a dark corner, but to acknowledge these are the places that Jesus has met me and changed me, even in my need and my sin. That that's the place that we experience, that we get a taste of the victory that he's talking about here. To the, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. These white stones... I will tell you, commentators have about a bazillion ideas for what these white stones could be, okay? But where, where I landed with it this week is that these white stones are essentially the Roman equivalent of friendship bracelets. <laughs> that before people would like go their separate ways, they would give each other white stones that had each other's names on it. It's like giving each other a locket with a little heart that's broken in half. And wherever you go, you're going with me. And people debate, you know, okay, well, whose name is written on which stone? Is 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 God giving you, is he whispering to you his name or is he whispering to you your name? Yes. But that's the point of the friendship, the friendship bracelet. Is that what it indicates is this deep degree of intimacy and knowing that is so freeing to people in the relationship. That the promise is that as we repent from our sin, as we run toward Jesus, that what we're going to receive from him when we see him face to face is a stone that, that, that shows us our deep connection with him. And that what will happen in that moment is that when we see him seeing us, we will become who we were truly created to be. Because we were created. And that we're being drawn into relationship. We're learning to walk in relationship with the one who made us, who, to call him Lord and to experience his love for us. And that as we hear him tell us who we are and what it means to live in that relationship, it makes us who we were created to be and helps us see him as he is. That's the promise for us as we overcome. As we together as a community uh, pursue an uncompromised life that is under the loving and living lordship of our risen Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. Oh, and God, we confess there are so many places in our lives, God, where we are compromised. So many places in our lives where we uh, put ourselves under the lordship of, of other powers or other gods that are not good to us. And Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you love us enough that you come for us. So God, as we sing now, as we worship you now, we pray that you would do that work. 
Lord, would you be fighting for our hearts and for our freedom even this morning? Amen.